All right, so we have, the last several weeks, been in kind of an introduction series to Salt City, um, but we're about to transition into what's our just bread and butter as a church, which is we just open up a book of the Bible and we walk through it. Uh, and there's, there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is we believe that the Bible is the authority. And you might be asking, authority over what? Well, literally everything. That the Bible is the authority on what's true. It's the authority on how we should live. It's the authority in your life. And so when we get together, and I think this is a helpful perspective for you to think through even what we're doing here right now. Okay, so what we're doing right now, I, I kind of grew up going to church thinking that this was, that church was some good advice for how to live. And I didn't necessarily want it, but I felt like I should get it and I should just go out and live like that. And that's fine, but actually there's something else happening. We're not here to just get some good advice on how to live. We're here to encounter God. We want to actually meet with him and experience him and, and know him and know what he's like. And the way that we do that is through the Bible. And so we teach through this thing. And, and when we just pick a book and we teach through it, what that helps us to do is to let the Bible set the agenda for our lives and not us as teachers set the agenda. So we just pick a book, we teach through it, and even if there's sort of inconvenient truths or things that are hard to talk about, we're talking about them, not necessarily because we want to, but because that's what the Bible says. And so it sets the agenda for what we're learning. And so this year to kick that off, you got these, uh, you got these fancy little things. Some of you were pretty, pretty pumped about this. Guys, we're, we're like a grown-up church now. Look at this. Uh, doing, doing fancy things like this. So we would love it if you would study through the book of Galatians with us. And I think a great thing to do with, with this book, and if, if you open that up, you'll see there's room to take notes. I think a great thing to do is bring that to church with you. And as we're preaching, take notes in the margins, uh, underline things in the test, text, ask questions, and, and ask yourself if what you're hearing aligns with scripture. Because I actually am not your authority. This book is your authority. And so I'm doing everything I know to do to point you to this book, but we'd love it if you would follow along with us as we go um, and to just study this at home. So I want to give, we'll get into Galatians in just a second here, but we wanted to take this chance to talk just for a second about what it means to value and, and study the word. So, so what, do you, what do you do with this and what do you do with the Bible? How does this work? So there's a lot of things that we could talk about. One of the best pieces of advice I've, I've gotten about reading the Bible, it's very simple, but I, it was helpful for me, is to learn to both read fast and read slow. So here's what I mean by that, is read the Bible fast like a story, because it is a story. The Bible is one unified story about how God saves the world. And you should read it like it's a interesting novel, because it's telling you a story. And so don't don't overthink it. Don't slow down too much. I think some people feel too bad about that. Just read straight through it. Sometimes for me in the morning, I set my timer, 15 minutes. I'm just going to read fast. I'll just see as far as I can get. And then if something lands with me, I go back to it and I read slow. And what I mean by reading slow is really studying and digging into the depths of what that text is saying. And so the way that you study, and again, this is just a massive overview, but I want us to think about it for just a second. The way that we study the Bible is first you make observations. 
That's why I think this, this little journal notebook is helpful because it's an opportunity for you to take a pen and just write down, for me, in mine, when I was prepping for this sermon, I've got questions in the margin of stuff that I didn't understand initially. I circle things that I think are the, the main idea of the text. I underline repeated words. I draw arrows to things that seem connected. I, I write out the logic of the text to try and get a feel for what's his main point, what are his subpoints underneath that. And so just observe like crazy and try and hold off from uh, coming to too many conclusions about what it means, just see what's actually there. And then once you've done the work to do that, then you can start interpreting. You can come to conclusions about what that text means. Now, a key to that is that you're not trying to figure out what it means to you. So we, we will never ask the question at Salt City, what does this mean to you? We'll ask the question, what does this mean? The Bible has one meaning in the text, and we want to discover that meaning. So if I were to write you a letter, you don't actually have the authority to decide what that letter means. When you're reading it, what are you trying to do? You're trying to discover what I meant when I wrote that letter to you. You're trying to find the initial message of the initial writer. It's the same thing we're trying to do with the Bible. We're trying to figure out what was the initial meaning from the initial writer. And so we do that, we figure out the, the meaning, and then we apply it in our current context. One of the best ways I know to do that is just to pray. I, I used to just try and apply through sheer effort and sheer willpower, and that's fine, but I need God's help. And so I see something that needs to change in me, and I on the spot ask him, God, would you change that in me? And then a second great context for that is connection groups. The primary purpose of connection groups as it relates to scripture is to apply the text. So we interpret it here primarily in Salt City. We interpret it some in connection groups, but primarily we focus on applying it. So if you want to dig in a little bit more about that, there's tons of resources. Come talk to us. We'd love to get you more resources. One that I love is by Jen Wilkin. Jen Wilkin does a great job of interpreting the scriptures. She's got a book called Women of the Word that is great, and it's actually not just for women, okay? So don't be scared away from that, men. Like, it's for everyone. Uh, and she's also got a series of, of articles and interviews that she's put out about interpreting scripture that are really good. And so we will actually post uh, one or two of those articles for you on our website, on our social media. So we'd love it if you would go and check that out after the service, get a little bit more help on what interpretation looks like. Okay, so that's the Bible. Let's talk about Galatians, all right? So we're gonna open up to the first chapter of Galatians. And often when you see an introduction in a book of the Bible, it's easy to sort of skip over that introduction uh, because typically they follow sort of the same pattern, and so you just kind of move on to the content. But actually the introduction, the first sentence in Galatians 1, is the main idea of Galatians chapter 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul here is claiming his authority as an apostle, as a a teacher from God, and he's saying that the message that I have for you is not just my opinion, but it's a divine word. It's something that I receive from God for you. And the reason that he's specifically emphasizing that and why he'll tell essentially his God story over the next couple chapters in Galatians is because he's trying to, to prove that this wasn't a message that he made up, but that he was actually opposed to that message, but because he encountered Jesus, his entire life and his message changed. And the reason he's establishing his authority is because the book of Galatians is what's known as an occasional letter. So what that means is Galatians was written for a very specific purpose. 
And, and we've got to get this before we can understand what's going on in the text of Galatians. We'll, we'll come back to this over and over again as we study this book. And so I think this is important for us to just talk about right on the front. The, the reason that Paul wrote this letter was to refute false teachers that had come into Galatia and were confusing the Christians there. And so we know a decent amount about what that false teaching was through the book of Galatians itself and some of the history that we have. And essentially what these teachers were saying is, yeah, they weren't necessarily outright denying Jesus. They were saying, yeah, Jesus was great. Be a Christian, do all that stuff. But in addition to that, you also need to follow practices of Judaism. So they were adding to the message. In particular, they were talking about circumcision which I'm aware that it's weird how much the Bible talks about circumcision. Let's acknowledge it and move on. Here is why the Bible talks about it is because it's similar to how we do baptism. It was an external expression of an internal reality, all right? So we'll move on from that. Uh, and they were also saying that they needed to follow these Jewish uh, religious ceremonies and uh, certain uh, Sabbath days and, and things like that. So these false teachers are coming into this church in Galatia. Okay, now let's dig into some of the content, uh, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Okay, Paul is angry. Like, if you were listening as Terry read that, there is some intense stuff in Galatians chapter 1. Uh, so Paul skips his customary sort of thanksgiving intro that he does in all of his other letters where he talks about how thankful he is for the church. He, he had a, a thanksgiving intro to the Corinthians. Guys, the Corinthians were messed up. They were creative in the ways that they found a sin. And Paul called them saints. But he starts talking to the Galatians and he skips the whole thing and he just says, I'm astonished. It's this urgent kind of almost angry tone. He says, uh, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ. So that word deserting was often used in a military context. Think of a deserter, but not only somebody that bails from the current cause that they're a part of, but actually transfers over to the other side, who becomes an enemy. So make no mistake that the issue that Paul is about to talk about, he's saying this is a life or death issue. This is a um, heartbeat of your faith issue. And if you didn't catch that, you really catch it when he starts calling down curses on people who disagree with him. It is getting very real. So if you're reading Galatians for the first time, what you should be thinking is, man, something's going really wrong. Like, like what in the world are the Galatians doing that makes Paul this mad? Like, are, is, are they murdering people? Is there like wild immorality? Okay, here's what they were doing. They were following some often, oftentimes beneficial religious traditions. <laughs> Seems odd. Right? Like if I came up to you and I just started yelling at you and you're like, man, Jordan, what's the problem? What did I do wrong? And I'm like, I cannot believe that you got baptized and are celebrating Easter. It's unbelievable. You'd be confused. Right? Because those seem like decent things. Okay, so this is important. The issue here is not the traditions themselves, but that those traditions were being added to the gospel. They, they, these false teachers were adding requirements to something that God intended to be free. And the second that you add anything to the gospel is the second that you no longer have the gospel. 
The heart of the gospel is that it is free. But here's what's true, and here's why we need this letter too, not just them initially, is that every single one of us in this room will consistently try to add to the gospel. We will try to make something, we will try to earn something that was intended to be free. Which is kind of crazy, right? Because free stuff is awesome. Drake, it's not just college students that love free stuff. We lo- I, I love free stuff. There's essentially two types of people in the ro- world. There's, there's people that love free stuff and there's people that don't. And you might be thinking, Jordan, why would someone not love free stuff? I, I'm with you. I don't understand. I love it. I, if I see it free or incredibly cheap, if I see a garage sale, I'm not getting home. It's going to be a while. I'm the dude that's stopping for stuff on the side of the road. I'm not ashamed. I love it. Now, my wife, she doesn't love free stuff as much. And at first I was very confused by that, and I've come to understand that that's because the free stuff I bring home is junk. Uh, I collect stuff that I'm convinced is inherently valuable because it was free, and then it sits in our garage for two years, and then we put it on our curb. So she's actually just a little bit more forward-thinking than I am. Um, So what's true is free stuff is fine in and of itself, but free things that are valuable are incredible. Right? Like nobody turns down something that's free and valuable. If you find a Vitamix blender on the side of the road, you're taking that thing home because it's amazing. <laughs> Guys, Vitamix blenders. I want one so bad. It spins so fast, it heats. You can make soup in it because it heats the stuff up. If I bring home a Vitamix blender, we're doing well. Okay. Everybody loves stuff that's free and valuable. Okay. So I'm going to do something that I don't typically do. I'm going to jump to the next point and then I'm going to come back to this idea. Okay. So don't let me lose you here. But we've, we've got to talk about something before we can come back to why we tend to try to make the gospel not free. But before we can do that, we've got to talk about what the gospel is. We haven't talked about that yet. So the gospel is one message that you can summarize multiple different ways. But here's what's true of the gospel is that it's both valuable and it's free. Let me give you the summary from Galatians 1 verse 4. It says this, Who gave himself for our sins... To deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so this is, oh, there's good stuff in here. Uh, This is a, a common summary of the gospel where he first talks about what Jesus has done for you on your behalf. That's the he gave himself for our sins. And then he talks about the result of that action, the benefits of that action to you. That's where he talks about how he's delivered us from the present evil age. So what does it mean to be delivered from the present evil age? What that doesn't mean is that you get sort of pulled out of this world into this sort of hyper-spiritual realm where you don't care about anything in this world. No, no, no. This world was created by God. It, in its foundation, is good, but there's something that's gone deeply wrong, and that's what Christ wants to pull you out of. Name something that's gone wrong with this place, and in Christ, you are free from that. He solved that problem for you. Let's talk about one of them, meaninglessness. I think we talk a lot about sin and delivery from sin, and I'll talk about that in a second. I think it's central to the gospel, but there's a lot of other things that Christ delivers us from. One of them is a meaningless life. A lot of you know what that feels like to wake up and to go to work and go, what's the point? 
and to feel like you're just in this sort of endless routine of meaninglessness or, or to spend your life chasing after something and then to get it and to find out that it didn't actually make you happy. To ask that question, what am I actually here for? Well, here's what happens in Christ. I think of Colossians 3 that says, do everything as if working for the Lord, not for men is when you know Jesus, he is now present in every facet of your life. He's along for the ride in everything that you do, which means that everything can be done through him and for him. It, it, and, and then everything in your life is infused with a significance and a meaning because it's done with him. It's like a few uh, drops of food coloring in a container of water. It infuses the whole thing with color. Jesus has infused your entire life with meaning and significance where the most seemingly insignificant thing in your life can be done for Christ and with him in relationship to him. He delivered us from this evil age. What was it that was evil about this age? You. Me. But Jesus has delivered you from yourself and from your sin. And so now the punishment for your sin is gone. He, he talks about this in, in Psalm 103 that he's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. To an infinite degree. Your sins can no longer be counted against you. There's no more wrath left for you if you are in Christ. But it's not just that he's removed the punishment for your sin. But he's removed the power of your sin over you. That you, as a Christian, no longer have to run back to the old things that you used to run through. You, you don't have to sin. As I was writing this, I was sitting in a coffee shop right next to a window, and a bird flew directly into the window right next to my face. I'm like, whoa! And it, like, weirdly, it was like a baby bird, too, and it, like, weirdly stuck to the window and, like, kind of rolled down in, like, this somersault of limbs and feathers. And, and I... Was real distracted. Okay, why do birds fly into windows? Because they can't see the danger that's coming, right? They have no idea it's there until they smack it. Why do people sin? Because they have no idea the dangers that's that's coming. You you're just cruising through life, living the way that you want to live, especially before Christ. And, and something in front of you seemed good, and it and it seemed worth living for until you hit it, and it ruined your life. That's what sin does. And one of the only things more disturbing about that image was if that bird would have flown up and ran back into it again and again and again. That's how some of you live. It is you've chased after sin and it's wrecked your life and then you get up and you go back to that same thing that didn't ever work for you in the first place. Let's have some perspective but here's the reality is before you knew Christ, you had no ability to actually get out of that pattern. That was your life. But now Jesus actually gives you the power to turn from sin. And some of you are thinking, get away from the point. What happened to the bird? Well, here's what happened to the bird. It laid there stunned for a little bit, looking at me for an awkward period of time, and then it flew away. It lived. Okay. <clears throat> here's what's true in Christ is you can fly away from the window. 
Like, you don't have to keep going back. In fact, God is like circling the windows and he's putting up signs that say, hey, don't fly here. This is going to hurt if you come here. He's telling you in his word not to wreck your life. And you actually now have the power in Christ to live differently, to, to go the opposite direction from sin. That's what he's empowered you to do in the gospel. Now, some of you might be struggling with this idea because you might be thinking, you said my life should be full of meaning, but I feel meaninglessness and hopelessness every day. I don't actually know what the purpose of my life is and I don't understand all the junk that's happening in the world. Or you might be thinking, yeah, that's nice in theory that I don't have to sin anymore, but I am sinning and it feels like I can't stop. Well, I think this is important for us to, to understand about the message of Jesus. It's, it's all throughout the Bible. It's what, what theologians say, call the already not yet is that there's pieces of this that already are true of you. So here's what I'm telling you is already true of you. That you're standing before Christ. If, if, if you are in Christ, you're standing before God is completely pure. At an identity level, sin is not held against you in any way. You are free from it. But there's still a reality that we're waiting for, for what's true of you in identity to be realized in heaven. To, to be actualized in your life. And we're living in the tension between those two realities. So imagine that you are in a war zone and you're in enemy territory and you go down. You get, you get shot in the leg. You're fine, but you can't escape. And if you stay there, you'll die. And so what do you need? You need rescue. You need someone from the outside to come in and to bring you out so that you can live. And so imagine a helicopter comes in and they put you on the stretcher, they put you in the helicopter and they fly you away. That's what Christ has done is you were helpless in your sin and if you would have stayed there in enemy territory in your sin, you would have died. But Jesus came into that enemy territory to rescue you, to pull you out. But here's what you need to know when things seem like they're still going wrong and the promises of the gospel don't feel true is you're still in the helicopter. So what that means is, is you've been rescued, but you're not home yet. And so you look down and the bullets are still flying and your leg still hurts. You still feel the evil and the consequences of sin in this world. It's still hurting. And if you focus only on that, you'll convince yourself that you haven't actually been rescued. But here's what's important is that Jesus has saved you and he's flying you home. And you just got to wait a little bit and there you'll find healing and hope and home. That's the tension in which we live. But the important thing is, is that you are on your way home. You've gotten the little taste of what will soon become your reality because of what Jesus has done for you. Okay, that is the gospel message. And that is literally the most valuable thing in the world. And I mean the actual definition of literally there. We use literally in weird ways. I don't like it. It literally is the most valuable thing in the world because Christ is the most valuable thing in the world. And your access to that message is completely free. You access all of that by grace and grace alone. You trust him to give it to you and he will. Hear me on this. If you want that, you can have it. There's nothing that could separate you from that message. You have access to it in Christ. It's completely free. Okay, so we're back to that point that we talked about. Here is the tension 
is that even though it's completely free, we get distracted from that beautiful message because we convince ourselves that it's not, that we've got to earn it, that we've got to contribute to it. And here's why. It's because we're uncomfortable with how that message makes us look. Here's what's true about that message is that you don't contribute anything to it. In fact, the only thing that you contributed was the problem, your sin. And that doesn't make you look good. And we don't like that when we look bad and God alone looks good. So growing up, uh, my, my dad and I had season tickets to uh, college football games. And uh, we had a couple extra tickets. And so we would... Um, go every week, and there was this one week that we went with my sister and her friend, Jen Eller. And I would always take this football with me, and I, and I remember specifically, I was, I was pretty young, I don't know how young, but I remember tossing this football up in the air and catching it, tossing it up and catching it. And then there was one time that I tossed it out a little bit too far, and so I had to run underneath it to catch it. What I didn't realize is that in running underneath it, I had run out into a really busy street, and so I, all I remember is looking up at this football, about to catch it, and I felt this hand on like the back of my neck grab my shirt and pull me. And I literally got pulled through the air, and as I landed on the sidewalk, this car flew past me. I was like inches away from getting hit by that car, but Jen Eller, Jessica's friend, Jen Eller saved me. That's what happens. That's what Christ does for us. Is we, in our own idiotic attempts to live for ourselves and save ourselves, walk out into certain destruction and we're completely unaware of the consequences that are about to hit us. We're completely oblivious to how bad the situation has gotten. And God reaches in and he pulls us away from that certain destruction before we even realize everything that's happening to us. That is the gospel. But here's the deal. That story doesn't make you look that good. And so imagine that I retold that story to some of my friends, but I didn't want to look like I was so oblivious to the world. And so I just changed a couple of the details, same basic story. So guys, I was throwing this football up in the air and then there, I was on the sidewalk, but this car drove up on the sidewalk and I saw it come and I was like, oh my gosh, that's going to hit me. And so I spun out of the way and I grabbed Jan Eller's hand and I pulled myself out of the way. Same basic story, same scenario, same result, very different hero of that story. Jan Eller is no longer the hero. I'm the hero. All you got to do is tweak a couple details. And that is our temptation, is to tweak a few of the details of the gospel, those, those shuttle, subtle shifts to make ourselves into the hero. And in the process, we end up denying the gospel because we insert ourselves into it. So some of you grew up in churches that explicitly or implicitly told you that Christianity requires something of you. I did. Here's what you need to know, is you were not taught the gospel. I, I gotta be clear on this because it's so important. That was not Christianity. That was something called Christianity, but it was actually moralism. It, it was using the teachings of Jesus and twisting them to deny Christ. Okay, now I know that it's, it's sort of common to say, you know what, forget about these theological debates and let's all just 
be friends. And I agree with that on a lot of things, okay? I, I hate dumb theological debates as much as the next guy. But this issue is a central issue, and it matters. Theology matters because it's the way that we understand who God is. And we've got to hit this point. You do not need anything to come into relationship with God. You don't need baptism. You don't need church attendance. You don't need confession. You don't need to stop sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't need to clean up your sin. You need Jesus Christ, and he then will clean you up. He comes first. Okay, so one of the objections I've heard to Christianity is the deathbed objection. So isn't what you're saying that you could have one person that lives this amazing life Right and, and lives for Jesus their, their entire life and is good to people and kind to people and lives out his message in the world. And then you can have another person that lives a horrible life and is a jerk and is ruthless to everyone around them who hates God and then at the very end of his life, out of fear, accepts Christ. You're saying those people go to the same place and receive the same reward. Yes. That is absolutely what I'm saying. Okay, so let's get real. I've heard you guys talk about at Salt City how our sins hung Jesus on the cross. Aren't you saying that the very things that hung the Son of God on the cross, that I, in theory, could pursue those things after knowing Jesus and still be a Christian? Yes, that is absolutely what I'm saying. Because the gospel is completely free, based on Jesus Christ alone, access through faith alone, by grace alone. That is the message, and that feels uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable saying that. I was writing that like, ugh, it hurts a little bit because I don't want that to be misunderstood, and we're, and, and we're afraid of the danger of somebody abusing the love of God, but what about the danger of someone have, thinking that they can have any part of this message that's equally, if not more, dangerous to think that we can earn the love of Christ? Now, if I can be frank with you, because it matters... The only way that you don't love that message is if you're self-righteous. If you identify as a broken person in need of grace, then that is great news for you. But if you identify as someone who's doing fairly well on your own, then you won't like that message because it seems like somebody who didn't earn it as much as you can get in. And the very fact that you have some of that going on in your heart, like we all do, is evidence of how badly you also need that grace of Christ. So let's not deny the gospel by adding anything to it. A second way that we can deny the gospel <clears throat> is by taking really good things that are absolutely implications of the gospel, but making them the main thing. So I've got a, a little chart for this. Um, so the first thing I want you to see is, can you see the chart? Nope. There, there it is. Okay, so the first thing I want you to see is at the, the center, the heartbeat of this church is the message of the gospel, which is the good news about what God has done for us. It's not advice, it's news. And our church, yes, we talk about college students, we love college students, that is not our primary passion. Our primary passion as a church is the gospel message of Jesus Christ revealed in his word. That's the focal point. Now, if we actually get that as a church or if we actually get that as individuals, it will produce implications. And so that's kind of our second thing that we've got. Is you've got these implications when you actually get the gospel. Okay, so you've got 
love. That's fairly self-explanatory. When you get the love of God, it makes you love other people. You've got self-control. You, you stop sinning as much as you used to because now you are in Christ. You've got good works that, that God has, has given you to do. You've got justice. And by that, I mean the biblical definition, not the cultural definition, the biblical definition from Micah 6, 8 that says what God requires of us is to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. So in other words, to respect other people as image bearers, neighbor love, that's what I mean by that. Those are all implications of the gospel. But where we go wrong, so those are the things that we do as a result of really understanding this message of free grace. But where we go wrong is when we take one of those implications and we move it into the center and it becomes the thing that your church is about or the thing that you are about as an individual. And in the process of pursuing something beautiful and good, we actually deny the fundamental message of Christianity. I think this is really important for us now culturally. We've got to think through this well. You keep the message of what Jesus has done at the center and everything else around it. But if you move one of those things on the outside to the inside, you lose everything else. Okay. So this is how we maintain the true gospel is that we don't add anything to it. But the second way you know that you've got the real gospel, and I want to finish up on this, is when that real gospel unleashes divine power in your life. Look at verse 12. For I did not receive it, that is the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, this message isn't my opinion. It's, it's the divine message that I've gotten from God. So if I'm just up here talking about my opinion, you guys should go home, watch some football. It'll be better spent time. But what we believe is that this is actually the divine revelation that we all want to come under, submit to together. And here's the proof that it is divine, is that it actually changes lives. That's Paul's argument as he said, this changed my life. Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So a lot of you know Paul's story. This is who Paul was, is he hated Christians. He was roaming throughout the Roman Empire to persecute, jail, and oversee the killing of Christians. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Paul is one. Something happened in Paul's life. It's hard to convince anyone to agree with you on what, type, what flavor of ice cream is best. Like, how do you convince someone that their entire life has been spent living for the wrong thing and completely changed sides the way that Paul did? Well, you have an a power encounter with the risen Lord of the universe. Paul saw Jesus alive. And when, we saw, when he saw him alive, it changed everything about his life. And that's some of the best evidence that Jesus actually is alive is when it changes the way that you live, when it gives you power to actually become a different person. Have you had an encounter like that? I'm not talking about do you just appreciate the teachings of Jesus? Have you met him? Have you had a moment or a time in your life where the reality of who he is began to weigh on you. And all of a sudden you saw him as the authority in your life, not just an interesting teacher. Or you saw him as beautiful and you found yourself wanting to follow him, not just trying really hard to. 
and you found yourself now able to actually listen to what he has to say because you have a new power inside of you. Look, we can chase all kinds of other stuff to change us, but this is the only thing that's got the actual power to change us from the inside out, to fundamentally change who you are. I sat down with a student a few years ago, and he had a ton going wrong in his life. Um, he had a, a massive, really brutal breakup. She had really difficult mental health issues. So did he. He had issues with his family. His life was completely falling apart, and he needed help. And so I sat down, and I told him about how Jesus offered him hope when he didn't have any, how Jesus offered him a new way to live, that, that Jesus could give him everything that he'd been looking for in life and never found. And when I got done telling him about it, he looked at me with this, disappointment and almost anger. And he said, I thought you were going to give me something practical to help me. And all I was thinking is, this is the most practical thing I know. I'm not saying practical solutions are of no value. I'm saying the gospel is the most practical thing in the world because it's the only thing that has the power to fundamentally change who you are, to make you into the image of Christ. Romans 1, 16 the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Let me pray. God, thank you for that. Thank you for this message that can actually change us in ways that we can't change ourselves. Thank you that um, not only is it free, but that in the gospel, we have the power to actually live different lives, that we can be different people. Um, Father, would you make it true of our church that we love you and we love the gospel more than anything else? And would it produce all of those other good implications, but would they never be the center of this place? Would we always be the people who love you and that basic, simple message that can change everything? That message of a God who came in to rescue us, to make us alive. Help us to never move on from that message. Would that be the focal point of all of our lives and the focal point of this church because it's the best news in the world, the most practical news in the world. It's the message by which we can be saved and then live new lives. And so we wanna sing about that together. Amen.